Hi, and welcome to the Essential Tennis Podcast, your place for free, expert tennis instruction that can truly help you improve your game. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Mr. Craig Shaughnessy. Craig, welcome to the show. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. I know we tried to do it over Wimbledon, but we're getting it done now. Yeah, you're extremely busy. I know you travel a lot and you do a lot of speaking and presenting as well as coaching. So uh, so thank you so much for spending some time with us. For those of you who are not familiar with Craig, he's the strategy analyst for Wimbledon, for the Australian Open, the ATP Tour, the New York Times. He's also a strategy coach for Novak Djokovic and he's worked with the just numerous other players as well. I'm sure we'll get into some stories there. And he's the founder of Brain Game Tennis at braingametennis.com. Anything important I, I left out, Craig? When people ask you, what, what do you do? What do you normally tell them? Yeah, that's it. Strategy analyst and, you know, all of those things. Those are the highlights. Wimbledon, Aussie Open, ATP Tour, Novak. Um, you know, I, I think also maybe put in there that I've spent – the majority of my life on a court coaching at clubs and coaching at academies. And I've worked, you know, tens of thousands of hours coaching recreational club players. So yeah. that that's the connection there. You know, it's not just, it's more pro tour now, but I've, you know, a, a lot of hours doing the other stuff as well. Interesting. So, so what does an average day for you? And I, I know you've got, you're fingering a lot of different pies and you're working in a lot of different areas of the sport, but, but what does a, an average day look for you and in, in what you're working on right now? Well, it used to be on court, um, you know, whether it was eight or 10 hours or whatever it was, some long days coaching at clubs. And back in 2014, I moved away from that and moved more towards um, what I'm doing now, which is the research and study and, and, and writing side of it. So I have a journalism degree. Um, and I've, I've coached a lot of hours on the court, and now I'm bringing those two skill sets together as well as, um, you know, the analytics of the sport and studying it. So using the tech side, with particularly with um, a software called Darkfish. So mm-hmm. at the moment, it involves research. It involves writing. It's a lot of stories. It's a lot of, uh, you know, numbers, and that's not particularly my background. I mean, math has never been a strong point. It's more in the writing side. So now I deal a lot with that and, and look at the percentages and not from a standpoint that I, I'm, I'm into, you know, I'm a stats geek or a stats nerd. I'm not. I'm looking at it for the standpoint of which strategies are more important in our sport, which if you run them and employ them, will deliver a higher win percentage and help you win more matches. So in order to figure out, should we do this more or do that? Should we serve out wide more or down the tee? Should we hit more forehands or backhands? Is it good to go to the net? Numbers, you know, tell us the answers there. So that's mm. what I what I deal with a lot on a daily basis. Well, I've read in your writing before that that you're not an analysis guy. You're not a, kind of a stats guy by nature. Uh, which I, I'm sure surprises a lot of people, but but I for one am, am really grateful for for your work and your analysis, and in particular the the stuff that you're publishing on a regular basis. Uh, so thank you for sharing those insights. It's been really helpful for me, and I know a lot of other people in the industry as well. Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, it, we're now at an age in the last couple of years where we're able to get access to more data and there's 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 more research being done so you know just probably since 2015 we're seeing more 
metrics available and it helps us understand our sport in the past as coaches we've just had to guess we didn't know where the data was coming from and just a little background on that up until 1991 we had no data collected in our sport Mm. from 1991 to 2002 very primitive data from 2002 onwards is you know what we call rich data it's been a lot better and from 2015 onwards some really good stuff that we're we're generating from our sport so it's all still pretty new Awesome. I'm glad somebody like you is digging through it and and really coming up with actionable, practical things that players can implement and execute. And I know you create programs for the everyday amateur player as well to to really take advantage of the things you're learning. So I'd I'd love to dive into some of that. And uh, previously, we're going to talk about Wimbledon, but now just coming off the, the win of Djokovic over Federer at Cincinnati, I thought it would just be, you know, dumb to pass up the opportunity to talk about that match i'm looking at your um i'm looking at your article right now on atpworldtour.com that has the the chart that kind of breaks down the the total points played and the the rally length can you tell us a little about a little bit about that and what's um what really jumped out to you when you looked at those numbers yeah well the previous week when uh it was in toronto when nadal beat um Stefano City pass in the final. I mean, as I'm watching it, I'm you know I'm absorbing the patterns of play that are there. I'm looking for, you know, the key metrics for the tournament, and that one was a really simple one. It involved around a strategy called serve plus one, and Nadal, I think there was 43 times a serve came back and he hit a forehand 41 times. So that was the you know the main theme in that match. In this one with Djokovic and Federer. As I'm watching it and I'm, I'm seeing these guys battle, the points were just so short. And, and um, you know, the one-shot rally. So, you know, there were some aces in that final. Um, I believe Federer hit 11 and Djokovic hit four. So you got 15 shots there. But it was the return errors that just keep popping up. And since he's a quick court, um, but there was probably more so than normal. Now, when... You ask players at all levels of the game, you say, well, what is the mode in our sport? And the mode is, what is the most common rally length? And in this match, there were 50 points, 50 out of 130, where the rally length was only one shot. (laughs) The next highest was 16 points in the rally length of two shots. So you can see the massive disparity there. And for recreational or amateur players, it's exactly the same thing. You know, they're going to have an idea in their mind that I need to go out on the court. I need to hit a million balls. I yeah. need to hit forehands and backhands cross court until, you know, my hands bleed, until I get blisters on my <laughs> hands. And, 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 you know, I need to run a lot. But the reality is that every single level of the sport, including Novak and Roger in Cincinnati yesterday, the number one rally length is always going to be a rally length of one shot in the court and the way rally length is determined in tennis is it's balls in so if i serve to you you return to me i hit a winner that's a three shot rally Mm -hmm. if i serve to you you return to me and i make an error that's two shots so it's two balls in the court so that's how you know i didn't make all this up it's how ibm calculated it's how sports organized and has been for a number of years but you know we would be very very wise at every level of the sport to spend more time on our serve more, and particularly more time on the return. So 
When you see amateur players go out to the courts, they're hitting forehands and backhands all day long, great. But if your goal is to win more matches, mm. you need to work far more on the shot that is practiced the least, and that is the return of serve. So what would you recommend? If you were coaching a, a 3-5 female player who's like around 500 win percentage right now, how would you tell her to break up her time? If she has, let's say, two practice sessions or three practice sessions a week of an hour long, how would you recommend that they spend their time? Yeah, so, you know, the way our sport's organized with winners and errors, it's in general, it's around 70% errors, 30% winners. And it'll go up and down a little bit. And for amateurs, there's probably a few more errors in there. Mm -hmm. But let's, let's start with a general 70-30. So we know that we play a sport of errors. Errors are going to happen. But what we've found from the research is that we have three different rally lengths in tennis where, where we organize them. So there's zero to four shots and zero is a double fault. Um, so a four shot rally means you've got to serve a return and the two shots after serve plus one and return plus one. So that's only a maximum of two shots for each player. Then a rally length of five through eight and a rally length of nine plus. All the long rallies go, go into that last one. Again, when you go to the practice court, it's all about shot tolerance and repetition and grinding and balls in the court. But the reality of tennis is that around 70% of all points are in zero through four, 20% in five through eight, and 10% in nine plus. So when you look at that zero through four part of the pie, which is 70% of the pie, what happens there is that the error ratio goes up. It goes up a lot. So it's typically around 80% errors early in a point. So here's my thought process with this is that, you know, we, we, we've got to have some reality here. So that if you, you know, we know that the errors are going to be there, but if you make an error on the fifth shot or the 12th shot or the 18th shot of the rally, we're cool with that. That's okay. You've got into the point, you know, you, you've tried to, you know, even it out. It's been in neutral and you've lost it. But a good piece of advice for you is the first two times you touch the ball, don't miss so that would be on your serving side, it would be don't double fault. And it would be with your serve plus one, let's make that. Let's put that ball back in play. And on the return side is let's cut down the return of serve errors and the return plus one. So out of all of the, th th there's eight things that can happen in the first four shots. So you've got a serve winner or error, a, a return winner or error, a serve plus one winner or error, and a return plus one winner or error. So you've got eight different outcomes. In order, at all levels of the game, the number one thing that's going to happen in there is a return error. Number one. The next is a serve plus one error. The next is a return plus one error. And next is a double fold. So out of those eight possibilities in the first four shots, the first four are all errors. So if you can decrease those errors, in particular the return of serve and the serve plus one error, you're going to be way ahead of the game. And it's not about hitting a million forehands or backhands. It's not about being more consistent. It's about being more consistent in the short rally length at the start of the point. The way matches are organized is, is very front end loaded. All the action, all the winning and losing happens early. But when we go to the practice court, we practice the end of the point. We practice, you know, the consistency side of it. So I would modify the training. I would do less, certainly not delete it altogether, but I would do less rallying, less consistency work, less long balls, less 10 shots in a row. I would do more second serve return work, 
aggressive deep down the middle. I would do more second serve work. Um, you know, the average amount of double faults for the ladies on the Pro Tour is they hit one out of seven. On average, one out of seven of their second serves is a double fault. The men are one out of ten. Roger Federer is one out of 16. So, so go out there and say, okay, here's my first drill. I'm going to just put two second serves in the court five times in a row, one in the juice court, one in the ad court. Two in a row gives me a point, and I do that five times. Then I go, I'm going to make three second serves in a row. I'll do that four times. Then I'm going to make four second serves in a row. I'll do that three times. I'll make five second serves in a row. I'll do it twice. I'll make six second serves in a row. I'll do that one time. That drill will help you win more matches than basically anything else. Amazing. Uh, I love the specificity there, and I, I really like the way that you explained you, uh, the the process, Craig. In the, in the past, I think I've I've and I've I've sat in on a lot of your presentations and enjoyed them thoroughly. If you ever have the chance to see Craig present at at a conference uh, of any kind, definitely take the advantage to do so. But I think in the past, I've I've kind of heard you. Um, talk about the the overemphasis on rallying and hit as many balls in a row as possible uh, as almost almost saying consistency is bad uh, kind of putting words in your mouth a little bit uh, that was kind of my my decoding of it but the way you just explained it I like a lot it's not so much that you're um, against consistency but you want to place that emphasis in the right part of the point is, is that accurate yeah con consistency is overrated um it really <laughs> really is it's it, it's the card that you play to enter the sport mm -hmm. if you can't hit four balls in a row in the court tennis is it's a difficult sport so when you are a, you know you're a two five a three hour three five the first thing, the most important thing that is that matters to you to winning matches definitely is consistency. Put the ball in the court, you're going to do just fine. But as you evolve and become and, and improve and become a better player and play against better players, the emphasis switches. The, 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 the emphasis on consistency drops a little bit because there's more firepower at the start of the point. You know, the serve speed will go up a little bit. So the emphasis moves from the end of the point to the start of the point. And on that pathway, as you keep improving, you will continue to play more shorter points. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're, when you're a 3-5, you're playing shorter points simply because you can't rally very long before you make an error. Sure. As, you, as you improve, you play more shorter points because you have more proficiency at the start of the point to try and make the opponent miss. Now, there's three ways a point are gonna, is going to end. There's a winner, there's a forcing error, and then there's an unforced error. And, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the, the term unforced errors, but, you know, it, it's a good one here. An unforced error is just a ball you probably should make that you miss. But a forced error is, is the number one way that you want to try and end points. Winners are just difficult. Winners are tough. Sure. Forcing, forcing an error means you've done something with your shot that makes the opponent uncomfortable. And that's repeatable. That's not too difficult. You're not sitting there waiting for the opponent to miss, which is very passive. You're not trying to hit winners, which is, you know, I'm taking the hammer out on the court. I'm trying to, you know, beat you with it all the time. Forcing errors for amateur players, especially early in the point, is a really good way to think about your game and organize your game. Now, the question you should be asking me is, well, Craig, how do I force an error? Glad you asked. 
there's eight ways to do that. So you start with the court and you cut it up into various ways. So the first is just consistency. And that's, I get it in anywhere. I get it in, I get it in, I get it in, I get more balls in, I win the match. Next is direction, cutting it left and middle and right. Next is depth, short and deep. And lastly is height, which is low balls, medium balls and high balls. So you've got four different ways with the court to force an error. Again, consistency, direction, depth, and height. Then you go to the ball, which has two elements, spin and power. And lastly, you have the last two elements, which is court position and time. And time is specifically taking time away from my opponent to prepare to get their hands and feet organized in order to hit the ball. So out of those eight, typically at the start of the point, it's all about power and direction. That's what most players gravitate to. Mm -hmm. And they shouldn't. It's depth. Go deep early. Hit. Doesn't matter if it's straight down the middle of the court. Find kind of the weaker side of the opponent um, and a side that, and when I say weaker, sometimes when you go to a backhand, they may not miss a lot. They may not hurt you a lot, but they may not miss a lot. So with a forehand, a lot of times, if you go deep middle to the forehand, if you can pressure the backswing on a forehand, which is typically bigger than a backhand, you will extract more early errors. So you got to figure that out when you look to the other side of the court and in the warm-up, which side will deliver more errors for me and you start attacking that side early in the point. So what do you... That's a, a great segue there, Craig. I personally feel like players are way too self-focused and self-centered on the court. What what do you recommend? And maybe this is something you've worked with your very hot, you know, highest level players on. What do you recommend players look for when trying to kind of crack the code and figure out what the path is to the shortest points possible? Yeah, well, most of the work, by far the majority of the work that I do with Novak is on the opponents. And, you know, the last thing, I wrote a story I don't know, sometimes in the last two years, it was actually on Federer where he played a tournament in the Middle East, maybe Dubai, and I think the opponent he lost to was Evgeny Donskoy. And in the post-match interview, it kind of looked like an upset. And the post-match interview, they said, you know, Roger, what happened out there? And he goes, listen, to be honest, I didn't know the guy. I didn't know whether I should play his forehand or his backhand. I've never played him before. He's not a regular on the tour. It was hard to find information. I just didn't know what to expect, and that was a big reason why I lost the match. So with every opponent that's Novak, that Novak plays, there is no surprises. There is an understanding. Everybody has their favorite patterns, and yes, they will move around the service box and they will change in general, but when you study this enough for a number of years, you get a good feel for the favorite patterns. You get a good feel, you know, the guy went down the line, but Forget about that. Actually, you want him to go down the line and hit winners. That's not where he's most comfortable on the court. So, you know, in your warm-up, the emphasis of a warm-up is not for you to warm-up at all. It's to gather information about the opponent, where they are strong, what their favorite patterns are, what they like. You know, I, I'm a lefty with a pretty bad backhand. And, you know, I don't come over it a lot in a match. I actually slice it a lot. I slice it down the line to try and make my right-handed opponent hit their backhand cross-court to my forehand. So as a quick example, in a warm-up, I'm not going to show that slice backhand. I'm going to come over my backhand as much as I possibly can and, and, and not give them, you know, a view of what's what's coming in the match. Sure. And 
I know that if a right-handed opponent is going to attack me, they're absolutely going to attack my backhand. And my way out of that backhand cage a lot of times is to hit a heavy slice, kind of down the line, a little bit to the middle, but down the line to their backhand. And what I want from them is to not to not know how to handle that heavy slice. I try and keep it low. I try and put as much backspin rotation on it as possible. And the natural spot, if they're not good at it, they'll dump it in the net. So at some stage in the warm-up, I'm coming over it, I'm coming over it, and we're just hitting nice and easy. So my topspin backhand looks just fine in a warm-up. Um, and then on the right ball, I will hit that heavy slice to their backhand. And it's a test. And what I want to see is them dump it straight in the net. <laughs> And as soon as they do, I'm like, okay, this could be my out. When I get attacked to this part of the court, once the match begins, you know, once all these shots mean something, this could be my out that they don't like. So I'm either going to do it only once or I may do it a second time to see whether I get another back end in the net. And if I do, they do not see that shot for the rest of my warm-up. They just don't see it. The other thing, and then once the match starts, they start seeing it all the time, but they've not warmed it up. They've not previewed that shot. And in a lot of ways too, if I notice early on my opponent does have a bad backhand, you know what? I'm going to hit a lot of balls to their forehand in the warm-up. Um, I just don't want them to warm it up. <laughs> but as soon as the match starts, there's going to be an avalanche of balls to that backhand side. Love it. So within the, within the five-minute warm-up period and my service game and their first service game, if I have... Clarity of mind, if, my, if I'm looking to the other side of the court, I've got 95% of my game plan completely covered out of, those, out of those three segments. So you're always looking to the other side of the court. And, you know, here's another example. When the player will warm up their serve, they're generally warming it up to their favorite serve location. So I pay extra attention. You know, even though they may be hitting it very slow, I pay extra attention to where those first three or four serves go because that's probably where they're going to go when they're under pressure. Good stuff. Uh, super actionable advice. I love it. Uh, let's shift gears a little bit. I'd love to dive a little bit deeper into uh, some of the stats that I've heard you talk about before. And actually, let's go back to that Nadal match you were talking about where I believe the number was 41 surf plus one forehands. And if I recall correctly, there were only two times in the match that he hit a serve and then a backhand uh, on the on the first serve, uh, I'm sorry, on the first shot after the serve, and I, I think just to illustrate, and then I'll kick it over to you. I think that I think when I read that, it was a perfect illustration of how unbelievably predictable winning patterns typically are at the very highest level. And I feel like amateur players think that a really good strategy or a good tactical approach needs to be tricky and like your opponent doesn't see it coming and they're trying to come up with some way to be really crafty and, and sneaky. But I, I love your presentations because it seems to clarify things so quickly that it's, it's actually the opposite of that. It seems like it's frequently very, very direct and obvious. It's, and Nadal's the best. I mean, think of it like this. He's number one in the world. And there is no player on tour. If we sat down and we took one of his matches and you said, Craig, and we just pause it, literally pause it before he hits every shot, before he hits every serve, <laughs> before he hits every forehand, before he hits every backhand. You know, I've studied this guy so much and he's so insanely predictable mm -hmm. that we could sit there 
and you're like, Craig, how can you do this? How can you how can you predict? You know, this ball's going to go across. This ball's going to go high. And I and not only will I predict where that shot will go, I'll be able to predict in two shots' time. I'll tell you exactly where he's going to be standing and exactly where the winner will be hit. And the reason is because he does the same high percentage things all the time. And opponents, you know, if you're an ATP player, if you're an opponent of Nadal, for goodness sake, this is your job. This is what you should be doing is looking at these patterns, either copying them for your own game or trying to figure it out. So you've got half a chance to beat him if you actually do have the wonderful opportunity to play him. But, yes, on the biggest points, when the pressure comes, you run the most predictable patterns and the highest percentage patterns of play. Trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat under pressure in a match is very, very difficult. Um, you know, Novak's win over Rafa in the semifinals of Wimbledon. I mean, look back at Novak's body of work this year. It hasn't been great. I mean, Indian Wells in Miami, Australian, Australian Open, you know, clearly not at his best. And then all of a sudden he comes out and, and wins these matches. And there's a lot to do with that with simply understanding the opponent. Um, you know, one of the things that Novak plays the first three sets at Wimbledon and then it gets too dark to play and they've got to resume. So I come, I, I, I come in early the next morning and I look at those three sets and I analyse them. And one of the things that pops out to me is that in the ad court, Novak had served 26 times to Rafa's backhand in the ad court. Rafa did not miss one backhand return to serve in three sets, not oh. one. Now, I sat and commentated on that match for the Wimbledon channel. I didn't pick up on that. Hmm. There are so many things in a match, and, and these are the things that I'm looking for. I'm, I'm digging deep into it. I'm, I'm you know, going down deeper layers than normal, and there's so many things that you miss. So, you know, if, it's, if I'm missing that coaching Novak against Rafa in the semis of Wimbledon, there's a really good chance our players are missing it out there. So uh, what I encourage you to do is, between the points, go to your strings and, and, and log it. So, you know, for a lot of amateur players, between the points is, is almost like downtime. It's dead time. It's an inconvenience between the end of one point and the start of the other. Um, but I remember some of the best matches I ever played, I was so incredibly clear and focused between the points. So here's your action plan. There's, there's a five, step, five steps between the end of one point and the start of the next. So as soon as the point ends out there on the court, the first thing you want to do is analyze what just happened. How did I win the point? How did I lose the point? How did it end? What was the flavor of the point? Give that point you just played attention and understanding and learn from it. So, you know, a real simple one would be you know, for Novak against Rafa, it's like, yep, he's making, I, I felt he's made, he had a good backhand return, but I was able to win that point because I was able to, to look for a runaround forehand and I was able to get that in the at court. So the, the first thing is review the last point. The second thing is go to your strings and write it down. So when you see players go to their strings, they don't care at all about the pattern and how far the strings are moving. It's a position of focus. The strings are a notepad. It's a place to start writing down repeatable patterns. So, you know, if you're the score's 4-0, you've got eight games of history in this match that, 
you, you want to go to. So that history is going to be written down mentally on your strings. Um, your eyes are a position, you know, your, your, the, the strings are a position of focus for your eyes. So when your eyes are looking around, you see a player looking around at other courts and looking at the top of the trees and looking at the birds and looking at every other distraction that's going on, they're not writing down and analyzing and remembering what they're doing well. So at the end of the set, you've got, you know, you've got, if it's five ball, you've, you've won a bunch of points. And those points, a lot of them will be exactly the same way. But if you're not writing them on the strings, you're not going to recognize them because they're separated by time. And you'll forget it because of that. So number one, review the last point. Number two, go to the strings. Number three, I want to see determination in your body language, whether it's the position of your shoulders, whether it's where you walk on the court, however you speak. You know, Raph is a little bit more, you know, um, out and loud with his determination. Federer is a little bit more relaxed and calm. I don't care. Next is a timeout. And it's just like basketball. You want to take hundreds of little timeouts. And the timeout is just hey, let's just let everything simmer down right now. Let's not think about the past. Let's not think about the future. Let's just breathe and be in the present and, and just chill. Just chill. Take five seconds of nothing, five seconds of calmness. And after the determination, the last step is plan your next point. Where is Rafa probably serving? Where do I want the ball to come back? How do I want the point to end? So once again, review the point. Go to the strings. Show determination relaxation and plan and if you do those five things between the points there's a really good chance your next point will be very good and you've already increased the likelihood and the winning percentage of you winning that point because you are ready mentally and emotionally for that battle wonderful stuff craig love it uh just one more thing i'd, I'd love to get your insight on before we we wrap things up and i, I let people know where to go uh, check out your content and, and your uh, the different products that you have. I've heard you talk about this multiple times and it always blows my mind. And that is the total points won for the top players in the world. And I think there's this perception among mere mortals like us that to be a Rafa, to be a Novak, to be a, a Roger, they must be winning you know, the vast majority of their points to stay in the top three for, for years and years and years. And you were the first person that really illuminated the truth to me on that subject. Uh, can you please talk about that briefly? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, let's start with the top of the tree. Go right to the very top, the number one player in the world. So, from 2010 to 2017, the number one player in the world for the men has averaged winning 89% of their matches. So, Nadal goes 67 and 11 in 2017. Murray goes 78 and 9 in 2016. Djokovic, an incredible 82 and 6 in 2015. So, they're basically winning 9 out of 10 matches that they play. But the number one player in the world, when you look at their points, on average, are only winning 55% of their points. 90% 90% of the matches, 55% of the points. And when you look back, to the evolution of our sport, in 91, Edberg was number one in the world. He only won 53%. Huh. Sampras in 96 won 53%. Quentin in 2000 won 53%. Hewitt in 2001 only won 53%. Huh. So this is one of those areas where you can see where is our sport changing and improving? You've got to do better in this area now in order to finish number one in the world. When you look at the average of the top 10, 
So first of all, we're starting, you know, what is our baseline here? The baseline is 50-50. You've got an opponent over the other side of the court, you've got yourself. So we start with a 50-50 battle. The number one player wins 55%. The top 10 average winning 53%. So then when I looked at the guy who's 20 in the world. So in 2016, Karlovic finishes 20 in the world. He wins $1.2 million dollars. Very successful. You know, the rest of the world wants to be Ivo Karlovic. In that season, he won 4,612 points. He lost 4,611. <laughs> he amazing. won. He was 20 in the world. He won $1.2 million. He won one more point for the entire season. He won 57% of his matches. He went 32 and 24, but he won one more point. So when you understand this dynamic, you understand that there's a lot of losing going on out there. Incredible, and the, yeah. the, the problem for amateur players is they get on this roller coaster of, I won the point, I'm all happy. I lost mm. the point, I'm sad. Yeah, I yeah. shouldn't be losing points. Losing points is bad. And it's just the worst way to think about our sport. You know, if you lose 45% of all points in a match, great day at the office that that's a number one player in the world day at the office you know if it's a 50 50 battle you're losing half you're 20 in the world um players between 50 and 100 regularly lose more points than they win so as soon as you understand this dynamic you go okay well if i lose a point i can mentally absorb it and say well you know i'm going to lose 45 percent of all points anyway that was just one of those points and it, it, it takes the Emphasis off perfection, which yeah. we have many, many players out there thinking they need to be perfect in a match, and it puts it on percentages. Mm. It's a game of percentages. It's okay to lose a bunch of points. The best players in the world are doing it. It's okay for me too. The Karlovic uh, st stat I hadn't heard before from you. That's that's incredible. Uh, yeah, that perspective is so freeing, Craig. And and I'm one of those perfectionistic, you know, tendency uh, players. I wish I had. I wish I had that information back when I was in college, uh, but I, I know the listeners of this show are going to appreciate that tremendously, as well as all the archives of all of your, your writing, your journalism uh, at braingametennis.com. I highly urge everybody to go check that out. Check out Craig's catalog of courses and programs that he has at braingametennis.com. And Craig, I understand you've got a new program coming out soon as well. Yeah, it's uh, coming out October the 1st. It's called Dirt Baller. It's an analysis only of clay court tennis. Mm. So we have a lot of amateur players, you know, around the country that love to play on clay courts. Yeah. It's easier on the body, the knees, the hips, the ankles, just an easier surface. Um, it's, it's singles. It's all about singles data. And we've got data from all the different levels in our sport. So, you know, certainly the way your foot interacts with a hard court and a clay court will be different. There's more smiting. Um, therefore, just because of that, you know, one obvious thing is you want to play behind opponents much more on clay than you do on hard because it's simply difficult, more difficult to stop and start. A lot of players don't make that adjustment. You know, we see an open court, our eyes pop out of our head. We've got a paddock to hit into, um, you know, and a lot of times, you know, that ball will take, you know, 1.3 seconds to go baseline to baseline. On a hard court especially, we can run that down in 1.3 seconds. On a clay court, almost when a player starts running, where they stand is actually the hole. Because by the time that 1.3 seconds, the ball reaches that person, the person's 
have to take three or four steps in the direction they're already traveling. Then they've got to slow down on a clay court, which is not easy. Then they've got to restart on a clay court, which is not easy. So it's certain elements of um, like that. But we break it down and, and come up with the metrics that show us, yes, the returning side is a little bit more important. Yes, serving drops. What are the new numbers we're looking for? How should we organize our match on clay court versus hard court? And in general, the, at the end of the day, the clay court data and the hard court data is very, very similar. Much, you know, they come together much more than we thought, but knowing where we want to make those differences is what the product's all about. Awesome. Good stuff. Yeah, I know for a fact I have a lot of clay court player listeners. So October 1st, where, where is the place where people want to follow you to really make sure that they take advantage of that? Uh, my website is is braingametennis.com. Uh, there's all the strategy products are there. There's eight at the moment. Dirtball will be number nine. There's also all of the stories that I write on the ATP tour and the and the previous ones from the WTA tour and the current ones also for the New York Times. I, I archive everything on there under the main um, heading tab of media. So, you know, you want a one place to go and find everything. You go to that media tab and you can sort through all the uh, the, the free stuff that I have as well. Great stuff. Craig, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. I know my listeners are going to appreciate it tremendously, as do I uh, appreciate your uh, your passion for the game and for digging into the data, finding these insights and sharing them with us. Uh, any kind of last words or um, any final things that you want to make sure people check out? The, uh, the, the last bit of coaching, you say, okay, you know, what's the one thing that I remember? The first two times you touch the ball, mm. don't miss. It's going to be about 80% errors and 20% error, uh, and 20% winners in that early part of the point in the first four shots. You erase those errors. You're going to be winning far more matches. Spend more time on your serve and return and the serve plus one and the return plus one over grinding all day long and you'll win more matches as well. Amazing stuff. Thank you so much, Craig. Appreciate your time very, very much. And I know my listeners are going, are going to as well. Uh, take care. Good luck with your coaching. Uh, and uh, I'll be continuing to follow you with much interest. Thanks so much, Ian. Pleasure. For more free game-improving instruction, be sure to check out EssentialTennis.com, where you'll find hundreds of video, audio, and written lessons. Also, be sure to subscribe to Essential Tennis on iTunes and YouTube, where we are the number one resource in the world, providing passionate instruction for passionate tennis players. Thank you so much for listening today. Take care, and good luck with your tennis.